welcome to the seventh episode of the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Welcome back, everyone, or if you're here for the first time, uh, nice to have a newbie on board. Today, I have the chance to speak with doctor, not professor. I just got told she's not a professor, Susan Hill. Susan Hill works at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Children. And her particular speciality is the care of children who require long-term parental nutrition. That's a very broad church. A lot of things can give you intestinal failure of various types. We're not going to touch on all of those today. How could we? But I'd like to ask her about advances in a field that... um, as little as 20 years ago, seemed pretty darn hopeless to me. But more important than that, when I was in London, I lived south of the river and worked south of the river. Great Ormond Street, of course, is north of the river, but I've just found out that Dr. Hill, Susan, is a south-of-the-river girl at heart because she grew up in Surrey. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Well, when when people say sorry, I think they often think of uh, suburbia. I grew up in the the rural side of Surrey, the Surrey-Sussex border, and uh, which is the sort of place where, for example, it was two miles to the nearest bus, which I think might surprise you if you have a certain if you've heard of Surrey. It certainly does. Um, And now you've transferred to London. How did you find yourself taking an interest in problems of parental nutrition? I guess I've always been interested in nutrition and undernutrition and malnutrition in uh, and um, uh, very early on in my career went straight into pediatrics and obviously for children nutrition is a major issue because not only do they have to maintain health but they also have to grow and develop and you can't do that unless you have the building blocks and then to me parental nutrition was a total mystery and it was probably because it was something i was curious about and really didn't understand at all that i eventually started to become interested in it so a challenge and a challenge that you picked up and that you've carried forward it's a funny thing. I was thinking about nutrition and alimentation as we approached this podcast, and I remembered the balance of postnatal adaptation. What was given to postnatal adaptation when I was in medical school? We spent a week on how the heart went through its its shifts and changes with the ductus venosus, the ductus arteriosus, the the closing of various defects. And I really can't remember anybody taking the time to say, once you're born, you have to eat and your gut has to work. And that's a remarkably complicated business and a lot of stuff can go wrong. Not just the mechanical problems that occur when, say, there's been a volvulus at a site of a gastroschisis or elsewhere, but the ones that in here in faulty metabolic focus, uh, faulty metabolic functioning, although the gut is of normal length. You cover both sides of that street, don't you? 
sorry, I didn't. Do you mean oh. both uh, antenatal problems and postnatal well, I problems? Well, post I meant the postnatal problems that occur because the gut isn't long enough. It was a perfectly lovely gut. It could do everything it was asked to do. And then something happened and boom, there's no more gut. <laughs> Versus the problems yes. that happen when you've got a gut that is totally the proper length, but it shrugs when asked to do its work. Absolutely. Yes. Because problems with the gut in the way, uh, um, you can just divide them into three groups, intestinal okay. failure. Um, uh -huh. Problems where there isn't enough gut uh -huh. or problems where the lining of the gut is damaged so that right. you uh, have a mucosal problem and you can't absorb nutrition. Right. And thirdly, of course, the thing that the gut is constantly doing is moving. So if there's problems ah. of peristalsis, a motility uh -huh. disorder, um, that is the third problem that can occur. If you can't shift your food down your gut, you won't absorb it properly. You won't absorb it properly. Well, there's clearly a point, an ab a, a, a caesura in a child's life when there's an intestinal catastrophe such as a volvulus. What about the other children? How long does it take them to come to your attention as a child who needs help with either motility or with the mechanisms of absorption? That's a, a very good question. Some children present quite rapidly after birth. And um, children who have problems with absorption, in the very worst case, it's something that they've that is a congenital disorder and they'll present in early life. And perhaps the worst case I've seen was a child who presented with um, what was thought to be kidney failure because they were so dehydrated huh. um, and uh, that they went into kidney failure. However, the problem was that what was thought to be urine was actually watery diarrhea. And the child had such a severe problem that if it hadn't been picked up quickly, they would have had chronic kidney disease. Fortunately, they were picked up quickly, given intravenous fluids, and then it was realised that they still weren't gaining weight. And we then realised they had a profound, profound problem of absor malabsorption. Um, no, I'm pleased a, to, yeah. a profound problem of malabsorption. But as a histopathologist who from time to time has been called on to help sort out what kind of malabsorption. Again, that's a very broad church. Children who can't handle sugars, children who can't handle anything. Um, there's a lot of sifting to be done before you can think about which approach to take, isn't there? You're quite correct. And that's where actually the pathologist is, uh, the pathology is um, a major part of the strategy in trying to get to the bottom of all this. And uh, it's not only um, what pathologists usually do in the laboratory when they just look under the light microscope at the histology, but also in these children, they need to have electron microscopy um, for unusual conditions such as microvillous atrophy or microvillous inclusion disease when there is a problem of the, the, the ultra um, the little uh, microvilli on the surface of each cell 
uh, lining the gut, the small intestine. Well, you start out with a child who is well-grown in utero and then comes out and can't handle eating. And you've sorted them into, this is a congenital defect in which there's a failure to absorb properly. And then you've got the other group to which you referred, the group in which the gut isn't moving normally. I was in, working in Pittsburgh when Andy Tsakis attempted the first set of small bowel transplants or small bowel and liver transplants. And those were miserable kids, just because the parental alimentation that was required to keep them going, whether it was mechanical, as in peristalsis, whether it was not enough gut to work with, or whether it was malabsorption, all of that poisoned their liver, given enough time. And they ran out of venous access. And you set yourself a real, real tough road to hoe. Oh, that's a Surrey metaphor. <laughs> a gardening metaphor, anyhow. <laughs> which, is, which sort of patients make up the largest part of your work at the moment? It's the short bowel patients, the one who've had, have either have a congenital problem with the length of the bowel or more commonly have lost most of their small intestine or their absorptive uh, part of the bowel um, post-surgical uh, resection. So um, these are usually children who've uh, been normal and then unfortunately have some insult and then end up losing a, a large part of their bowel, which of course is devastating uh, for everyone involved. Um, of course, for the parents, for the child themselves and for everybody else in, around, the professionals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There used to be, if I'm remembering it right, it's a, a Z-plasty or a Z-plasty, surgical approaches to lengthening the bowel or to, do those work? Oh, um, they they can work. Um, it, they're not something that you would try and do initially, but in older children who've still got a short bowel, if it becomes dilated, um, more blown up like a balloon, and then there's a, a more air, a, a volume in, in the bowel lumen, inside the bowel, um, then that can lead to um, quite serious problems for the child with, uh, for example, bacterial overgrowth and malabsorption. And um, those children benefit from what you're talking about, which is uh, um, a lengthening procedure. And uh, there are several ways of doing it. Um, but probably the most common one is what we call a step, um, which is a serial um, enteroplasty, when basically it's like taking a piece of paper and doing zigzag cuts down the edge and then being able to pull the piece of paper out Ooh, to make it longer. That's and the first this is intelligible explanation what? I've ever heard. Okay. <laughs> and that actually can work. But first you have to say, we've gone as far as we can with parenteral alimentation or with enteral nutrition, and we need to do something more. Have I got the sequence right? We, we, we can help this kid with parenteral alimentation, but to do so, 
is invasive, has its own problems. There's a certain amount of gut there, and after assessing the length, after assessing the child's nutritional needs, then maybe we can move towards surgery. Is that the general sequence of how these kids are handled? Um, surgery is definitely one of our um, strategies that's available to us when the mm -hmm. guts become very dilated. But the way that we manage these children today is to keep them going with that parental nutrition. Okay. And unlike 20 years ago, when sadly there was a very high uh, mortality rate, now these in a good unit with a multidisciplinary team, uh, it's possible to aim for a good quality of life with parental nutrition at home throughout childhood. Obviously, that's not the first aim. The first aim is to wean them off the parental nutrition right. and to gain enteral autonomy, which is what you're trying to do with that surgery that you're mm -hmm, mentioning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, surgery can be very helpful and can sometimes it can result in enteral autonomy but at the same time we have we now are able to set something up that will keep the child alive throughout childhood and if needed even into adult life and uh, as an adult this relies on there being more gut more circumferential gut if, when you have a dilated bowel then you can take then you can rearrange it topologically, as you've described. Hmm. But you've, got, you've been involved in really interesting work that increases the gut pharmacologically. I'm thinking about that glucagon-like peptide. Uh, am I saying it right? Teduglutide? Teduglutide. Teduglutide. No, I'm not saying it right. Pronounce it for us all. I think you're saying it as well as anybody does. I really don't know if I pronounce it right or not. But so teduglutide uh, sounds uh, all, all right. right to me. Yes. Teduglutide, remember that name. And what that does is it, the pharmacology of the bowel and of bowel growth has, has advanced immensely since I was in medical school, which is, of course, to be hoped. I was in medical school a long while ago. But now we know about these chromaffin cells and about their paracrine activities and how they can help actually increase the volume of the mucosa. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, well basically, um, we all produce something called uh, glucagon-like peptide 2 yes. or GLP-2 yes. after uh -huh. we've had a meal. And um, the... Uh, medication tetaglutide is an artificial synthetic form of GLP-2 mm -hmm. that we can give to these patients with short bowel in the hope that will help to increase their ability to absorb nutrients. So it's a very exciting advance. It's like having growth hormone for your growth. This is basically a growth hormone for the gut. Does the gut lengthen or is it just a matter of increased villus height, increased crypt death? It's a really good question to ask if the gut lengthens because actually it's pretty difficult measuring the gut. Uh -huh. um, it's a slippery customer when it comes to, um, I'm sure surgeons will tell you, um, it, they do measure it and they, they do their best at it, but it's quite difficult. And for the amount that the gut probably lengthens, it's quite difficult to 
assess, but you would expect it to. Certainly in um, patients who have a, a stoma, if they have their bowel ending uh, on on their abdomen with a ileostomy or jejunostomy, mm -hmm. um, you'll see that the stoma bulges a bit when they start treatment with tetraglutide. Oh, okay. And that's partly just the mucosa, uh, improved blood supply and hypertrophy of the mucosa. But it does seem uh, you would it does seem that it's possibly also a little bit of lengthening going on. We know that. Here I am, aged almost 70, and my gut is almost certainly longer than that of a newborn infant. <laughs> so it has to increase in length. It has to have that ability to increase in length as well as in diameter, and um, I'm happy to say in capacity. I do love my food. <laughs> but what I'm asking is, what other triggers might people be looking at for increasing gut growth? Well, you've said the most important one, which is food. Um, uh -huh. Obviously, uh, children um, all have a potential for gut growth in the same way that they have a potential for the rest of their body to grow. So these little infants, when they have a short bowel, do have the potential for gut growth. And when we talk about the length that remains um, or they are they have when they're born or remains after they've had their initial major surgery um, it will always be longer um, several years later um, mm -hmm. but as I've said already it's a little bit difficult to assess exactly how long um, and uh, but what we um, aim for when you've only got a short bit of gut and it's not enough to absorb all the nutrition you need, we aim to for what we call adaptation so that the gut can absorb better. And one of the ways to get it to absorb better is to offer the gut food. And um, most people who work in this area uh, prefer to offer these infants solid food as much as we can rather than just liquid feed because it does seem that with more complex solid food, the gut tends to respond better. What role do, do changes in the enterobiome play in facilitating or delaying gut growth? Ah, oh, well, <laughs> um, the enterobiome, um, I think, uh, is, is a massive subject. Um, as That's why know. I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> we all have uh, more um, bacteria in our gut than uh -huh. cells in our body. And I think that we're not quite at a stage where we can even pretend we really understand what's going on there. We can scrape the surface, though. And um, one of the things that's been shown in short bowel syndrome or short gut is that there's less diversity of bacteria in the gut. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, secondly, we're always on the lookout for um, overgrowth or, or, of bacteria that might cause uh, the child um, a disease. And actually, this is one of the biggest problems in children with short bile today is that um, when they wean off their parental nutrition, or even while they're on it, some of them, they are at risk of what we call uh, bacterial overgrowth and the growth of bad bacteria. And the bad bacteria can lead to um, systemic symptoms, um, such as uh, with uh, 
delactate and neurological symptoms. So mm-hmm. it, it's one of those signs that what's going on in your with your gut bacteria actually f- affects the way your body functions. Absolutely, I guess. Um, this happens as you start to wean children off parenteral alimentation, which carries with it an increase in the amount of enteral nutrition given, a shift in the balance between parenteral and enteral, so that the gut is being asked to handle a larger volume of enteral nutrition than it's been accustomed to. Uh, Go on. Yes, I mean, it doesn't happen in everyone, fortunately, Mm -hmm. but we certainly have a number of children. And actually, do you know, I'm really talking about what we might call ultra short bowel. This is more common in. And these are children who are left with less than 10 to 20 centimeters of uh, a small intestine beyond the duodenum. Uh, And um, they're, they're particularly at risk. Uh, but it can happen in other children with longer short bowel as well. Um, and uh, for some of them, um, uh, it, it, it is a significant problem um, because uh, if the, they produce all these uh, lactate-producing uh, bacteria, if they start growing in their gut, then they can have problems with coordination. They can have loss of balance. They can appear as though they've had too much alcohol to drink, um, and if it becomes even more severe, severe, they can lose consciousness. So it really is a problem that we have to um, find a good way to manage. Right now, we manage it by asking them to have less sugar to eat because it tends to be very um, associated with refined carbohydrates. Um, But also... uh, um, uh, we unfortunately have to give them antibiotics, and none of us like giving our patients too many antibiotics. That certainly would rejigger your enterobiome, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. With all of the complications that arise from having the wrong bugs or not enough of the right bugs in the right place at the right time. Well, tergl- uh, let, me, let me check again. Tedoglutide. Okay. <laughs> Is tetraglutide then a, I'm not going to say it's a panacea. I've looked at some of your papers and some people have a problem with um, fluid shifts or, but relatively minor problems, if I understand right. Tetraglutide is the way to go, huh? Tetraglutide is, I think we're going to find it's the start of a new approach to its uh, dealing with um, short bowel. Um, and probably many other gastrointestinal disorders once we get to understand this better. It's actually been around for many, many years, but it's only just in the last 10 to 15, 10 years or so become used uh, in, um, in patients. Um, but there are a whole load of uh, gut hormones and GLP-2 is just one of many. So I think it, it will be... Um, the way forward, and it's a very exciting uh, new development. Yeah, that was my understanding as well. That there's been so much progress in understanding how the gut works on a paracrine level. That is now available or starting to be available for exploitation on a clinical basis. I'd hate to think that Andy Zakis had 
spent a long life uh, with intestinal transplantation, well, I'd love to think that you've made him unnecessary. Is, uh, can, can we do without intestinal transplantation, do you think? Oh, but, um, it, intestinal transplantation is still there. I mean, those of us who deal with uh, intestinal failure and short bowels, we're doing a salvage job, aren't we? We're, we're salvaging the bowel. Sometimes you get to a point where your best efforts at this salvage work fail. And you've already mentioned two of the main reasons in small children it be, can be because, of course, while they're on their intravenous nutrition, they have to have a central venous catheter to infuse it. And if they need too many of those, they end up damaging the blood vessels and then it's not possible to continue with that treatment because you've got no way of infusing it safely into the bloodstream. You then mentioned the liver. Now we're actually in uh, major centers where we have good multidisciplinary teams. We have managed to do really well and we don't really see much liver disease anymore. But on a worldwide basis, it is still there. And that is another reason for transplant, because if your liver doesn't work anymore, um, you, you, you can't survive. Now, you could in some of these children now, they'll just do a liver transplant. And then if, if the child is also weaning off their parental nutrition and the guts might do, then they might just do a liver transplant and not do the gut at the same time. But there is still a place for gut transplant. Yes. But it's such a complicated smaller. field. And not only that, these kids have been through so much and had such a complicated medical history that I bet you're not dealing just with gut problems. You're dealing with problems in a lot of other systems and you're dealing with problems in a damaged family. Such a good point. Um, I think that for most of these families, the uh, onset of that uh, short bowel was an acute problem. And in many of them, the, the most common time for it to happen is in a premature baby. And just imagine having that, first of all, that stress of having your early baby that you weren't expecting, then finding they're in this high-tech unit in, in a neonatal intensive care, and then going in one day and finding that you're told they've got to have uh, a large part of their gut removed because they've got a problem with the blood supply to their gut with this condition called necrotizing enterocolitis. So many of these parents must have quite significant PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, that in some is probably never dealt with, unfortunately. Um, they really do need a lot of support. And then, of course, if you've got brothers and sisters, imagine suddenly having this new little baby turning up, which is bad enough for a child with a normal little brother or sister being born, to then find that this new little one is taking up all your parents' concerns and they too um, have their problems. So not that's the family side. Uh, and then, of course, for the child themselves, uh, there are concerns. But this is where in the gut, if you have intestinal failure, we have um, we do our best to give them the best quality of life with this supportive treatment, parental nutrition. Um, because if you have a gut transplant, it really is 
jumping to a new disease that itself has new systemic problems that although intestinal failure has systemic problems, it's just another um, tier, a, a big step up in those systemic problems uh, if you move on to having uh, to have a gut transplant. It's a little bit different if, I mean, most people know about uh, kidney failure and dialysis. And if you're on dialysis, you wait for your transplant because a kidney transplant is so good. Whereas if you're on parental nutrition, uh, you don't want your transplant. You want to be able to, um, and the, the, the other good thing about intestinal failure is if you're really fortunate, you actually wean off your parental nutrition and regain gut function. Susan, we've talked now about the burdens that families undergo when confronted with this spectrum of disorders. Not only that, they, they undertake the actual mechanics of patient care at home rather than in a hospital setting. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? Um, yes, I'd love to, because this is what is so important to me, is that we don't have hospital at home, but that this parental nutrition is incorporated into the family's daily lives as much as it can be so that actually we teach the parents to do something that's normally only done in a high-tech unit in specialist centers and they actually learn to connect the parental nutrition which is a sterile bag of nutrients that's then dripped with the pump down a plastic tubing into the child's um, main bloodstream overnight they then disconnect during the day and then clamp off um, the close off the end of the tube, the, the catheter that remains in the child. And then the child is free during the day to go to school and join in other childhood activities. And for example, they can even go swimming uh, in relatively clean water. And this is what our, our whole philosophy of our service for these children is to provide them with the best possible quality of life. Susan, we haven't scratched the surface, is my feeling. There's so much that you could tell us and so many ways that you could uh, tell physicians who need to care for these patients, but uh, time is short. Time is short, and I don't even get a chance to ask you about how your garden is doing out there in the Sussex borders. Maybe another time. At the moment, though, we'd like to ask you, is there a song that particularly for you sums up what it's like to be an English woman and in, and in medicine and taking care of pediatric patients who are desperately ill. If you can find one song that takes care of all of those aspects, you're better than I am. Absolutely. I don't <laughs> think I can give you a song that sums up all those things. I do apologize. But if you'd like a song to... Uh, um, lighten the um, uh, something positive uh, yes, to to lighten the uh, the conversation. Um, I thought perhaps a Beatles song would um, fit uh, be fitting. Wonderful. And um, uh, I was thinking about a song that was written in the uh, Surrey, which was uh, "Here Comes the Sun," um, which was written in a Surrey garden.
like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Susan, I love that song, and I think it's perfectly appropriate, even for today when, boy, it's raining. Anyhow, thanks very much. Thank you, Alex, and um, I um, would like to dedicate this podcast to all my patients who've taught me so much about life and living uh, with short bowel syndrome. Thank you.